Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hello and welcome to the Prospect Podcast. I'm Tom Clark and this week, as ever, I bring you politics. But we keep coming back to this issue of the end of austerity. And I think it poses an interesting strategic dilemma for the Tory party, really, because the question is the extent to which they want to play Labour at its own game. And culture. If I've made it sound a little bit like a textbook or a seminar, I apologise because you could not be more wrong. Later on in this broadcast, we speak to Paul Collier, the Oxford economist who's written our cover story for the November issue of the magazine on the problems with British capitalism. Too many benefits, he says, are going to the land of gold and poison in London. So he asks, how can we save Britain? From its mighty capital. Macmillan's phrase, you've never had it so good, wasn't directed to the metropolitan highly educated. It was directed as a description of life for ordinary factory workers in provincial England. Nobody would dare utter that sentiment now. We'll get to that in a moment, but first I'm joined here in the studio by Steve Bloomfield, who's Prospect Deputy Editor, and Alex Dean, who is our political correspondent. Um, First to you, Steve. You've just written a piece for uh, us on our Prospect website about a new BBC drama, which you're intensely positive about. I am indeed. Uh, It's called Black Earth Rising. It's by Hugo Blick, uh, who was the creator, director and producer of The Shadow Line and An Honourable Woman, uh, which starred Maggie Gyllenhaal. Uh, An Honourable Woman was all about Israel and Palestine. Uh, This time he has uh, tackled an even more complex uh, geopolitical situation, which is the Rwandan genocide. Um, And one of the things that is so astonishing about this drama is that it is not just a simple story about the genocide. It is about all the complicated issues that flowed out of that uh, and still flow out of that uh, almost uh, a quarter of a century later. So he talks about French complicity in the genocide. He talks about uh, the uh, Tutsi reprisals against some of the Hutus in refugee camps in uh, Zaire, as Congo was uh, was then known in the in the mid nineties. He talks about Western guilt about the Rwandan genocide and how that's led to Western governments turning a blind eye to what's happening in Rwanda now, where you have uh, a president who wins ninety seven percent of the vote and there is no dissent. Uh, and he talks about justice, international justice, and how it often doesn't work. If I've made it sound a little bit like a textbook or a seminar, uh, (laughs) I apologise because you could not be more wrong if you got that impression. It is an absolutely incredible drama uh, with some great names in it. John Goodman, uh, Michaela Cole uh, stars as uh, Kate Ashby, one of the main characters. Uh, It absolutely fizzes with energy. Is it unremittingly miserable? 
No, no, far from it. I mean, there are obviously bits of misery when we sort of talk about uh, what happened in the genocide. But even there, actually, the way that he's uh, he's portrayed those scenes is through illustration. He worked with an illustrator to create these very atmospheric scenes when people are talking about what happened back in 94 uh, and the year or so after in the refugee camps uh, next door in Zaire. And it really brings it to life in a very evocative way. Uh, so no, it, it's a it's a thriller. It's uh, it's intense. It's dramatic, uh, and it is the greatest drama about Africa that has ever been shown on the BBC. As you said, Steve, it's an immensely complex geopolitical situation. Um, but when we were talking about this a little bit earlier, you said they didn't put a foot wrong, which is quite remarkable. No, I mean, I. so just for some context, I was Africa correspondent for The Independent in the mid-2000s, and I uh, went to Rwanda and Congo many times during the, the four or five years I was I was based in, in East Africa. Um, and so a lot of these these issues and these stories are ones I know well, um, whether it's to do with the political situation in Congo or the aftermath of the genocide in Rwanda. And yeah, I kept on waiting for there to be either sort of a misstep, a sort of slight mistake in the research, or maybe something that would be a bit glossed over because it's complicated. Um, And yet not once was there a mistake. Not once was there anything where uh, Hugo Blick decides that we're not clever enough to understand it. But but when you say complicated, I mean, if we're making a drama about, you know, the Holocaust, there's there's, there's clearly an evil side and you need to be pretty upfront about that. Is the Rwanda situation not the same? There are many evil sides. So this isn't just about the uh, the the Hutu-led government uh, in Rwanda in the early 90s that decided to uh, to wipe out the Tutsi population. It's about the way the French government at the time uh, was complicit in helping them do that. Uh, it's about the uh, the complexity of what the Rwandan government that came after the people that actually stopped the genocide. This genocide was stopped by a Tutsi army uh, coming back into the country to defeat the government that was uh, carrying out the genocide. But those Tutsis who won that war, as it were, then became government themselves and became a very, very uh, undemocratic uh, government that has completely closed down all democratic space in the country. Shades and, of the Red Army in 1945, perhaps, but you wouldn't get that in a typical drama. Would well, you? exactly, and and he he doesn't shy away from that. Um, there is there is really no one who who comes out of this as the good guy, whether that's uh, the Americans uh, post genocide trying to uh, essentially assuage their guilt um, and and let the Rwandans do what they want. Um, or the current Rwandan government. So, and it, as I say, it, it's done brilliantly. The carrots are fantastic. The act, acting is brilliant. Um, and it's also, you know, it's very rare to have a drama where you'll have lots of scenes with two black women actors uh, as the only people uh, on in the scene. And there are, you know, that happens on numerous occasions. Let's turn now to politics um, because we've just had the budget and Alex this was billed with a more interesting headline than usual the end of austerity is that right definitely the government's heading in that direction um it's debatable whether it's actually the end of austerity there's more money for the NHS but a lot of the extra spending is going towards that um and there's going to have to still be cuts elsewhere quite savagely in, in the 
budgets of some departments. Um, there's also a question of, of tax cuts and so on for for the most well off. So it's uh, it, there's more money for universal credit. There's more money for schools. There's more money for potholes. So certainly end of austerity is kind of the headline and it's understandable that that's the way it's being built. Um, dig into the detail and maybe it's a little bit more complicated. Um, but we keep coming back to this issue of the end of austerity. And I think it poses an interesting strategic dilemma for the Tory party, really, because the question is the extent to which they want to play Labour at its own game. The political direction of travel seems to be everyone's fatigued about these cuts. Um, you know, we've squeezed just as much as we can. Uh, and now's the time to ease off a little bit and the country's tired and exhausted. And, and so we need to you know, up the spending a bit. But you're never going to out Labour the Labour Party. So it's an interesting political dilemma they find themselves mm. in. They can't keep on the hard austerian line. Um, you know, that would be deeply unpopular in, in many respects. Equally, though, they're never going to out Labour Labour. Um, so it's, it's difficult for them in the long term. Actually, though, I thought the headlines uh, this morning are fairly positive, really. They're pretty, they're pretty good. But, Steve, they could be giving themselves one hell of a what we call an expectations management problem, couldn't they? I think so, yes. I mean, the the, the line, you know, end of austerity uh, worked well for 24 hours in Theresa May's speech uh, at Tory party conference. But as you saw, you know, almost immediately afterwards, it is being used as a stick to beat them because austerity hasn't ended. It just hasn't. If you end austerity, then uh, you begin to solve homelessness. If you end austerity, then there is more money for schools. If you end austerity, then your library is going to reopen. But none of these things are going to happen. And again, if I can uh, just pick out another line, I think, that was in uh, the Chancellor's speech, which I think is going to come back to haunt him. It was the description of little extras for schools. Uh, that I think is going to... Uh, we're going to see that line again, and not from the Tories, but mainly from their opponents. Uh, schools have been starved of resources. Uh, most teachers are having to pay for basic resources for the children in their classes, like pens and paper. Um, the idea that Philip Hammond can come out and say, oh, don't worry, we, there are some little extras uh, that you're going to be able to get in a budget where... More money is going to be spent on potholes than schools is, I think, going to become uh, a big issue for them uh, in in the coming weeks and months. I mean, I was struck, um, Alex, um, that there was a feeling in, I mean, it's a very boring and bitty kind of speech, but there was a feeling that there was an awful lot of Labour foxes being shot in the cliche, you know, that he was saying, oh, we might do this thing to take on the internet giants over here and we might do this thing with universal credit to make work pay over here and we might like have a have, have a look at the way capitalism's working uh, in the regions over here and it, it just felt like they were on labor territory i mean there's certainly a case you can make that at the moment labor's winning the political battle of ideas i think interestingly though labor's been been put in a bit of an awkward position over these uh, tax cuts for the better off after the budget i've seen fairly little dissent actually from the tory ranks uh, and actually, the Labour Party uh, seems to be s- struggling a little bit more. John McDonnell came out and said that uh, Labour would nod through these these tax cuts mm. uh, for the better off. Emily Thornberry said that you know the tax cuts for the better off were a disgrace. And and Andy Burnham actually uh, <laughs> on Twitter, I think he you know quote tweeted 
what John McDonnell said and said, I have no idea why we're doing this. So it's interesting that uh, despite all the problems you can pick in the Tory approach, actually, the next day, it seems to be Labour that's that's having this uh, internal battle, not he, the Tories. It is interesting. I mean, Tony Blair promised to nod through Conservative income taxes in 1995, 1996, uh, because he wanted to, like, not get into an argument about that and then went on to put it up national insurance. So I'm sure it's basically, Steve, uh, a, a, a political game, but when you're not in control of your political troops, playing a political game gets a bit more difficult. It is, and it is is one of the problems for opposition. I mean, you know, of course, in, in 1997, uh, Tony Blair and Gordon Brown said, we're going to stick to the Tory spending plans for the next two years. Well, I mean, Ken Clark after the election said, I wasn't going to stick to these. <laughs> um, but Labour felt they had oh, to Clark. do that, so, so they mm. stuck to it. And actually... That was pretty damaging. There was, you know, two years of uh, of, of spending cuts in the first two years of the, of the Labour government when there perhaps shouldn't have been. But then when Labour was in government, they could turn it around and they could uh, make the argument there was investment versus cuts. And you had then successive Tory opposition saying, uh, OK, we're not going to reverse uh, Labour's, uh, Labour's spending, Labour's investment. It's a tricky thing. This is also the problem with uh, raising the um, the uh, the tax free allowance is that it is it's not just a tax cut for for the rich. It is also a tax cut for anyone who earns uh, you know less than fifteen thousand pounds or earns less than twenty thousand pounds. It just happens to be bigger for those that earn uh, more than more than fifty thousand um, pounds or even more. So. It, there's a. It is slightly tricky that John McDonald doesn't want to be seen as being against tax cuts for the lower paid and hasn't quite worked out how to square that circle. Let's leave that there, Alex. Well done for getting through an episode without talking about Brexit. But now it's time to turn to our main feature this week, which is an interview with the Oxford economist Paul Collier. So I'm delighted to be joined by um, Paul Collier, who is of Oxford University, where he's an economist and also, and particularly pertinently for our purposes, he's the author of a new book called The Future of Capitalism, which sounds like a big, chewy title for a big, chewy book. And he's also the author of the cover story for our um, November edition. Um, welcome, um, Paul. Um the future of capitalism, like I say, a fairly grand and sweeping kind of a title. Um, I think you talk in the intro, don't you, about um, Tony Crossland's The Future of Socialism. You're trying to do something here that goes much wider than economists these days are used to trying to go. Yeah, I mean, Crossland's The Future of Socialism was an attempt, a successful attempt, to reset the left. And it decisively reset the left away from Marxism towards social democracy. Um, the future of capitalism is an attempt to reset um, the path of, of capitalism in, in Western societies. That sounds a pretty grandiose project, and I guess it is. Um, but periodically, capitalism goes off the rails. It's the only system we've got that delivers rising prosperity. And so we don't want to overthrow capitalism. At least I don't. I think it would be a very foolish agenda. But um, the idea that it can be safely left on autopilot is just unsustainable, untenable. 
And wh- why is that? You mean because of the banking crash? or No, I think if we go back to the last 200 years, which is the pertinent sort of time frame for capitalism, um, it first derailed um, in the 1840s, which was the culmination of, um, of that first wave of capitalism that produced the big northern cities where we both grew up. And um, uh, they were miracles of rising productivity, factories, brought people together, scale and specialization, um, but they turned into killing fields. The cities, minus public policy, became unlivable. Life expectancy collapsed uh, to just 19. People were dying like flies. And we needed public policy to put it back on the rails. That happened in the second half of the 19th century. Then we got another derailment in the 1930s. Different thing, mass unemployment. We got Keynesian economics, put it back on the rails. Now, from about the 1980s, it's come off the rails again. But we've not put it back on the rails. And so... um I mean, just check, first of all, that we we understand what we mean by capitalism. You mean there's private property rights, things can go bust and be replaced? Is that the kind of idea? or it, It's essentially decentralised competition um, with, with, with a degree of property rights. But uh, decentralised competition, I think, is the very essence of it. Um, and, uh, and that's the thing you're determined, whatever else you do, you want to ho- hold on to? Yes, that's right. And a, and a degree of property rights, though... Uh, property rights are, in the end, social contract, constructs, and so need to be fitted to the needs of the society. Okay, so you, you're not constraining, when you think about the future of capitalism, you're not constraining yourself any more than Tony Croston did in thinking about the future of socialism, where he said he wasn't so bothered about the means of uh, production and who owned them anymore. You're, you're not so bothered about property rights, you just want to make sure there's competition. My philosophy is the philosophy of pragmatism, which is to say there are no grand utopias. There is no grand ideology with a manual which will give us um, heaven forever. Um, Pragmatism is about saying, let's work out in the present context what the present problems are and see how best we can fix them. Okay, so let's just check we agree on how big the current problem is because we're not in a killing fields world like the 1840s people are still living quite a long time there's some arguments about whether the progress is stalled but we're not suddenly seeing people dying much sooner there's some arguments about inequality and with the recession there's arguments about food banks and um uh, uh, and and and, and uh, some real hardship but is it really that bad that we need a complete rethink won't there be some people who say Actually, living standards are far higher than they were, Paul, when you were growing up, and um, like capitalism's working okay. Do you run into that as an argument still? Um, especially when I talk with people like us who are part of the uh, highly educated metropolitan class, um, because we've really never had it so good. Aha. But Macmillan's phrase, you've never had it so good, wasn't directed to the metropolitan highly educated it was directed as a description of life for ordinary factory workers in provincial England. Mm. Nobody would dare utter that sentiment now because it's no longer true for them. These people are facing real anxieties that have emerged over the last 40 years. We're dealing with two new structural rifts in our societies, 
both of which are vicious and need to be addressed, but haven't been. And they are? One is a spatial divide between a booming metropolis and broken provincial cities and towns. And the other is the new class divide between the people who've been to college, university, got a degree, and use that degree to get um, a more specialist job where they acquire more skills, uh, and people who got non-cognitive manual skills, and those skills are being devalued. And so one class is on an up, an up escalator, mm. and that's the metropolitan educated, and we just never had it so good. And then there's another class, which is the provincial less educated, um, and they're on a down escalator. And their anxieties, which are very real, haven't been addressed, and so they've mutinied. They're muted in Britain with Brexit. They mutinied in America with Trump. They mutinied. And so the anxieties they've got, that the people who in the 1950s might have felt they'd never had it so good but wouldn't feel that now, what are we talking? Are we talking about maybe their health and their opportunities? Or are we talking more just that their wages have been stuck for a long time? Where, where is well, the- there's, there's, a, there's a range of dimensions to it. One is, indeed, that wages have been stuck for a long time. Um, the a, a second is that the um, dignity and skill associated with these jobs has has been uh, diminished. Um, there's a, a survey called the Jobs and Skills Survey, which has tracked the same question for 25 years. How, basically, have you got enough autonomy in your job to to do what you feel you you need to do? Mm. And there's been a 40% fall. In the the answer, people number of people answering yes. Gosh, that's striking, isn't it? Um, so, you know, in twenty five years ago, most people said yes, I have, and now yeah. most people say no, I haven't, and that's because um, we've got this sort of top down um, uh, attempt at running uh, firms, which and and public organisations as well, which strips ordinary people of, as it were, moral responsibility. For, for their actions and and leaves them with the ability to use their judgment. And so, um, I mean, that's a very striking statistic you, you give and, and, and there's certainly a lot of statistics about wages and, and, and increasingly about health too, which would, which would make the same point. Um, but you must run into, I'm sure, particularly working in economics, a kind of technological determinism that says, well, look, of course the people at the top are going to do very well because, um, you know, there's the internet, which means that one star can come up with a good idea and have it disseminated all around the world and that lots of things that those skilled manual workers you talk about in the past used to do are now done quite competently by uncomplaining robots. And so there's no use any more than there is in trying to disinvent the industrial revolution. Do you ever Do you ever run into that as a objection actually not so much amongst economists more amongst politicians who've think they've understood the message of economics as meaning just leave it all to the market mm. um, most economists if you push them will admit that um, two areas which are enormously important cannot be left to the market and one is spatial um, uh, the uh, 
the market solution to clusters of knowledge is that everything ends up in uh, in London. As it were. Everything ends up in the big agglomeration um, because clustering of knowledge is a coordination problem and there is no market in what future firms will decide where they'll decide to locate. And so in the absence of a market, we're faced with radical uncertainty, an important concept in economics now, and the solution to radical uncertainty is develop some narrative such as London's the future. Um, uh, I, um, Yaman Ganesh, um, who's a very good commentator, but classic London metropolitan, mm. came out with a description recently of how from London he saw the rest of the country and he said it feels like being shackled to a corpse and that is a narrative it's a morally disgraceful narrative because it denies any sense of empathy and reciprocal obligations with the rest of the country mm. but it's the sort of narrative around which um, knowledge intensive firms cluster into into the capital that has to be countered so that can be countered but it is a public policy challenge to to create knowledge clusters in provincial cities to decenter the knowledge clusters from the agglomeration markets won't deliver a socially desirable outcome the other area where markets won't deliver a socially desirable outcome is skill that the the market will deliver um, a solution in which firms don't train workers mm. they poach them and uh, that's why there has to be an active public policy in investing in the skills that firms teach. Um, and uh, Britain's been terrible at doing that. Um, the market leader here is Switzerland, you know, not exactly uh, a Marxist state, um, but 60% of the Swiss take the vocational training route mm. Um, they're properly paid for a four-year course. It's very prestigious. And half of the money is financed by firms who make damn sure that people who come out of that are properly uh, employable in a, in, a, in a job which gives them discretion and dignity. And when you talk about the idea um, that we hear more about now of radical uncertainty, I, I think I got this right that it's a kind of, I don't know if it's a known unknown or an unknown unknown but it's the idea you can't say with 50 percent certainty if we open up a new office in sheffield it will succeed it, it, it's an idea that we just we we don't know That's the right. statistics and That's so you're right. guided by impulse much more is that right and with radical uncertainty pretty well most of the things that matter um are subject to radical uncertainty right you know, the the, the uh, economics wildly uh, exaggerated the importance of, uh, of decisions that can just be treated as a probability distribution. Yep. That was the big mistake of the last 50 years, which is belatedly being corrected. Um, so things like where is a city going to thrive, which yeah. cities are going to thrive, that's radical uncertainty. Um, and, uh, and we now know that um, if you leave it to radical uncertainty, people are very averse, and especially the more educated, and the firms are very averse to taking decisions where they see it as radical uncertainty. Yeah. And so the way that 
radical uncertainty is converted into things that can actually lead to practical decisions is these sort of convincing narratives, credible narratives. London is the future. London's the future. And uh, that's the default option. The default option narrative is the big agglomeration that's already thriving will continue to thrive. Yeah? Um, and so you have to break that narrative as a credible account of the future. It was a credible account of the last 40 years. That's why it's set in as a credible account. Mm. But it has to be broken. And public policy has to break that. It has to introduce a new credible narrative. Let me give you an example of elsewhere in Europe mm -hmm. where that happened. The city of Bilbao yep, in, in Spain. the Basque Country. Mm. That was a, a declining industrial city beset by uh, Basque violence. And so it was, looked like a doomed city. And then um, an investment occurred which would never have got through the British Treasury. <laughs> and that was the Guggenheim Museum. Mm. And the Guggenheim Museum, first of all, it was an irreversible commitment. It was there. Yeah. It was spectacular. And it on the back of it, a new narrative was set. Bilbao is cool. Yeah. It's got a place to go. And it worked. It's worked. It's helped revive the city, right? Now, I'm not saying we should put museums everywhere, but that's an example of resetting a narrative around which all these independent actors can coordinate because they can all buy into it. Now, I mean, it's a fabulous example. We did a big piece on, on just how remarkable the turnaround in Bilbao's um, fortunes have been within the last year. So, so I'm kind of across that. But let's come back to the UK and particularly this divide between the regions, which is what you've really focused in on for, for prospect between places like Sheffield, where you grew up, and London. Um, I'm still nagging at me as this census. Would we need to recreate something like, I don't know, this the Sheffield cutlery industry? Or could it be that Sheffield becomes the UK's centre for accounting or law or something yeah, like that? We're not trying to recreate the past. Mm. Right? That is the delusion of populism. Um, that the past was better, so let's go back to it. Yeah. Right? That's... Um, it sounds sensible. It's easy to imagine the past yeah. and something so, known. So it's a classic populist ploy. It sounds right until you think about it. Yeah? Once you think about it, you know, what killed Sheffield, what killed Stoke, was the rise of lower-cost clusters in East Asia. Are they going to go away? Can we magic them away? No. Doubt it. So... Um, the future is not going to be a return to the past, but it is going to be about bringing in a new skill cluster. Now, um, can it be any skill cluster? Most likely it's going to build on some skills that the city already has. Sheffield has two fine universities, mm. right? has a very strong engineering tradition, um, uh, and a lot of people who had that skill. It's, it's not unreasonable to think that it's going to be in some something in the, of that space, right? And you need to get an anchor firm that is knowledge intensive in that space, that's big and prestigious and sets up there. Um, and that firm will go there because it's reassured that an awful lot of other things are going to happen that's going to make this a great cluster. Yeah. Um, Stoke. Um, 
you know, stoke was, was, was ceramics, was pottery. Still got a bit, hasn't it? And it's not unreasonable to think that there's some space in the world ceramics pottery field that could be, um, you know, that could be, that could be uh, introduced there. Um, that would be my starting th- thinking, mm. but, but, but the, the answer might be, no, it's best not to do that. It's best to think of something new. So we've had, like in um, Manchester, and that's a city that's big enough to, um, you know, have some real hope of generating a new cluster. The BBC moved a load of its operations to Salford, didn't it? Um, I mean, we've also had things that I'm pretty sure haven't worked, like moving the Office for National Statistics to Newport in in, in Wales. I mean, have you followed these kind of government um, brainwaves and, and, and do you think any of them have worked and... Well, I think it, you, you, there's some signalling value in them, hence Bilbao. But but um, but the signalling value is best if it's integrated to some obvious um, sector that can expand around that activity. And the problem with the, the statistics department in Newport is what what's going to cluster around that? Mm. It's hard to think there's very much, you know. Um, so it's got to be part of, a, as I say, it's a coherent and credible narrative. And just moving statistics to Newport didn't really support a larger, coherent and credible narrative. And if we think back now to, I mean, you talk about your own story quite a lot in the in the book, which of course goes beyond Britain, because I should stress you've spent most of your life working on development economics. But but your story within Britain is having grown up in a in a poor home with parents who I think left school at twelve, um, and, uh, and and fought your way up or risen via education via Oxford to academic posts and all the rest of it. Um, do you think that, that those doors are still open to working class kids from Sheffield? And if not, do you think, do you have a lot of confidence that if we pursue the sort of agenda you're talking about, that they can be open again in the future? I think, um, I mean, to answer your question, I think those doors are much less open now than they were when I was a kid. Um, but I think the um, the central task is not to be able to to help the brightest and the best to escape from provincial cities. Mm. It's not that at all. It's we need to get a, a humane globalisation, a globalisation that works for a society, is one in which you move the productive jobs to where people belong, mm. not the brightest and the best people to where the market wants to cluster the most productive jobs. And so um, I don't want to see uh, a million more kids like me who left their home um, and uh, succeeded in the metropolitan life, Mm. nice as that is. I want to see many more million productive jobs move to places where people feel they belong. So, Paul, you talk um, uh, in the book about the experience of growing up in Sheffield. You talk about um, uh, a cousin who I think was born on the same day. Absolutely. Um, and uh, who um, whose paths was in parallel with you 
for the early part of your years and then they radically diverged. We had diverging lives. And um, and I think that was uh, wholly avoidable. She became a teenage mother. She had two daughters who both became teenage mothers. Um, and she faced all the humiliations and indignities of teenage mothers in Britain where there's just not enough um, support and help um, to make a young family um, thrive. Um, and you feel like she never really got back on track? She never got back on track. And that's... Uh, an avoidable tragedy. There was no objective reason why she couldn't have continued, as we had until 14, each with lives that were pretty parallel, right? Um, and, um, and so that, to my mind, is, a, is an avoidable tragedy. It's a failure of, not of the economy, but of our um, ability to look after people. Yeah. It's, a, it's a social failing. So part of the book is uh, is about, as I say, what I call social maternalism. It's an agenda for helping families. Um, we just as we need firms to work, to be able to bear the weight of obligation. We need families to be able to work that hold together and that can bear the weight of the obligations we all have towards our children. Yeah. Um, so, so that's the, 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 the personal tragedy that I've lived through. Um, and, uh, and that was a, much of the passion in the book is driven by that sense of, um, of, of pain mm -hmm. um, that I've lived through with my own family, partly ripped up by the economic catastrophe of Sheffield losing its steel industry, where my relatives and neighbours... I could see this happening to them, losing their jobs, becoming redundant, facing mm. lives of despair. And then this social failing where if a young family derailed, there was, there was no adequate correction. Right. So we really are going to have to grip it. Paul, thanks very much indeed. It's been fantastic talking to you. Thank you very much. That was Paul Collier there. And to read his piece, Saving Britain from London, you can visit our website, prospectmagazine.co.uk, where you'll find all kinds of great stuff on domestic politics, global affairs, as well as arts, culture, science and more. I'm Tom Clark. My thanks to Steve Bloomfield and to Alex Dean here in the studio. And the November edition of Prospect featuring that article and a lot more is in the shops now. So why not grab a copy? The producer of this broadcast was Jay Elwes. Thanks so much for listening. And please do go to our iTunes page where you can rate and review this podcast. It really helps other listeners to find us. And be sure to join us again next time for the Prospect podcast. The number one selling product of its kind with over 20 years of research and innovation. Botox Cosmetic, out botulinum toxin A, is a prescription medicine used to temporarily make moderate to severe frown lines, crow's feet, and forehead lines look better in adults. Effects of Botox Cosmetic may spread hours to weeks after injection, causing serious symptoms. Alert your doctor right away as difficulty swallowing, speaking, breathing, eye problems, or muscle weakness may be a sign of a life-threatening condition. Patients with these conditions before injection are at highest risk. Don't receive Botox Cosmetic if you have a skin infection. Side effects may include allergic reactions, injection site pain, headache, eyebrow and eyelid drooping, and eyelid swelling. Allergic reactions can include rash, welts, asthma symptoms, and dizziness. Tell your doctor about medical history, muscle or nerve conditions including ALS or Lou Gehrig's disease, myasthenia gravis, 
or Lambert-Eaton syndrome and medications, including botulinum toxins, as these may increase the risk of serious side effects. For full safety information, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. See for yourself at BotoxCosmetic.com. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.